Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. New revelations from that $1.6 billion Dominion lawsuit against Fox. We'll tell you what Rupert Murdoch said under oath about multiple Fox hosts and the lies they were peddling about the 2020 election. CNN is still digging through the court documents tonight, hundreds of pages worth, so we'll have more in a moment. Plus, the racist rant from the creator of the Dilbert cartoon. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Well, now newspapers across the country are dropping the Dilbert cartoon. The creator claims to be canceled, but maybe that's just the free market at work. We'll discuss. Also, does a bear do cocaine in the woods? Well, this one does. Why movie audiences are hooked on cocaine there. Okay, but we start with the new revelations about Fox and Rupert Murdoch. Here with me in studio is LA Times columnist, LZ Granderson, CNN legal analyst, Ellie Honig, CNN media reporter, Oliver Darcy, and Mark McKinnon, executive producer of The Circus. Gentlemen, great to have all of you here. Um, let's dive into what Rupert Murdoch said under oath, because it's fascinating. Oliver, um, should we do a dramatic reading between the attorney and Rupert Murdoch? As long as you're Murdoch. I'm going to be Murdoch. But, okay. but wait a minute. Can anybody else do an Australian accent here? Mar- go for it. No, you go for it. Oh, I don't know. You got the gear. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't. You do have a down under look. No. You're in that hat. All right, I may have to call you in as an understudy. Okay, go. This is what it says. Okay. This is the this newly is- released excerpt from all of these court documents for the $1.6 billion Dominion voting systems lawsuit. Right. So this is, I'm a Dominion lawyer. You are aware now that Fox did more than simply host these guests and give them a platform, correct? I think you've shown me some material in support of that. In fact, you are now aware that Fox endorsed at times this false notion of a stolen election. Not Fox. No, not Fox. But maybe Lou Dobbs, maybe Maria, as commentators, stop. Time out. They are Fox. They are Fox hosts. When he says not Fox, not Fox, that's a lie. They are Fox hosts. They make up Fox. And he controls. He has the ability, as he admits later on, to control the programming at Fox. So if he doesn't like what Maria or Lou or Sean Hannity is saying, he he has the ability to call him up on the phone and say, don't do this on my network or else. Okay, keep going. They, uh, I'm supposed to ditch the accent because my accent, I have a general accent for anything, and that's just what I use, no, but it has nothing no, to do on. with being... I can, I can oh, see Meryl Streep is shaking her boots right now. You keep going. Okay, thank you. I like this. Go. We went through Fox host Maria Bartiromo. Yes. Yes, come on. Fox host Janine Pirro. I think so. Fox business host Lou Dobbs. Oh, a lot. Fox host Sean Hannity. A bit. All were in that document, correct? Yes, they were. About Fox endorsing the narrative of a stolen election, correct? No, some of our commentators were endorsing it. About their endorsement of a stolen election? Yes, they endorsed. Okay, that's, that's the point. Here's the point. He's drawing a distinction, but you guys are commentators. I'm a, well, you're also an anchor here and a reporter. I am a host. There is a difference. There's a difference in responsibility. As commentators, you can offer your opinions, but you can't make things up out of whole cloth or we're supposed to call you on it. As hosts, we cannot make up lies out of whole cloth. 
That's not at what you do at a real news network. That's what his hosts were all doing. I think it's important to point this out. At a news network, what we do at CNN, what other news organizations do, is they try to find out what the truth is and then relay that to, to their audiences. And of course, it's not always perfect. Sometimes there are mistakes, but that's what they do. In this case, we are seeing that Fox knew the truth, knew that the, uh, the election wasn't stolen. It wasn't rigged against Trump. They knew this behind the scenes. The highest ranking people, Rupert Murdoch, as well as Fox CEO Suzanne Scott, they knew this, as well as hosts like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, on and on it goes. But they hid that truth from their viewers. And worse, they fed them the nonsense that they were trashing privately behind the scenes. That's not what a news network does. Mark? Well, I'll ask Ellie, who's the expert on First Amendment law. I mean, this certainly helps meet that threshold, doesn't it? When you're knowingly lying... It does. Which, which he admits here in the deposition. So here's the legal standard that we need to be looking at. It's called actual malice. And it means to say something false, but to do it either knowing that it's false or in, with reckless indifference to the truth or falsity of it. And here, look, the text, I think, established the knowing falsity of it. And here's the key word from the segment that you just read. Endorse. Endorse. Because here's the defense that Fox is going to make. They're going to say... We were just presenting newsworthy coverage. We were showing what Donald Trump was saying, what people around him were saying. That undoubtedly is newsworthy. We were transmitting that. We were broadcasting that. But here we have Rupert Murdoch saying we endorsed it, which is exactly what the plaintiffs, what Dominion's going to say. He's going to try this whole thing. Well, it was them. It was my you know, four key anchors. It wasn't us. That's not going to fly for the reasons that you just set up. So that notion of endorsing is going to be crucial. So how much trouble are they in? Well, I think they're in big trouble uh, potentially losing a verdict here. I mean, look, I think that these texts fairly clearly establish actual malice. I'm not sure they're going to recover $1.6 billion. This is a company that has been valued even before well, this lawsuit reduced at that, a right. fraction of a fraction of $1.6 billion. But I like their odds on winning the verdict here. And, and besides, I mean, yeah, right now that's their value. But there's no way for them to say without a shadow of a doubt that the value that was damaged today or in 2020 won't impact what their revenue could have been in, say, 2032. So, yeah, I can see them saying, yeah, today this is your value. But because of these lies, you've been devalued going forward. And how do you quantify that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the argument will be you've essentially killed our business here because we rely on local officials, state officials to hire us to do the do the uh, election logistics. And no, no, we're done. And so maybe you take the current value and you multiply it out. To Especially if you stretch it out, right? Sure. So if you look at, say, the red states, the red states may not necessarily want to have Dominion be part of their election cycle going forward, or right? anybody, for that matter. Well, but, well, partic- but particularly yeah. like yeah. those that may be Trump-leaning, right? So all of a sudden now, whatever those number of states or, or, or elections are, they may have lost that simply because of the lies that was told about them in 2020. Yeah, but they'll have good business in Venezuela. <laughs> well, here's another. I want to say one more. I want to sh- read one more excerpt because I think that this one is also really disturbing. So during uh, Trump's campaign, Rupert provided Trump's son-in-law and senior oh. advisor Jared Kushner with Fox confidential information about Biden's ads, along with debate strategy. But on election night, Rupert would not help with the Arizona call. As Rupert described it, my friend Jared Kushner called me saying, this is terrible. I could hear Trump's voice in the background shouting, but Rupert refused to budge. And I said, well, the numbers are the numbers. By this point, Rupert knew no fraud had occurred. Is it fair to say you seriously doubted any claim of massive election fraud? Oh, yes. And you doubted it from the beginning? Yes. I mean, we thought everything was on the up and up. I think that that was shown when we announced Arizona. The point, Oliver, is that he shared debate strategy 
Yeah. With the Trump campaign and confidential information about Biden's ads? I think there are two ways to look at what we're, here, we're seeing now. One is the legal case, so whether Dominion has any legal act, action against Fox and whether they win. But also, outside of that, this just exposes Fox News for what it is, right? And in this case, we're seeing now that Murdoch was seemingly willing to help Jared Kushner and the Trump campaign have an edge over Biden. We saw in the previous filing where he talked about do whatever you can to help in the Georgia special election. I'm assuming he didn't mean to help the Democrats. Uh, and so it really has exposed Fox for this GOP propaganda arm that it has been for some time, but we've never seen the evidence like this. I mean, we've never seen it from the horse's mouth. Not fair and not balanced, clearly now. And it, interestingly, in 2000, during that presidential campaign, someone sent our debate tapes from the Bush campaign to the, to the Gore campaign. They went to prison. Is that right? Yeah. I remember this story. It was and, weird. It was and weird. yet, I mean, I remember that story. And that feels like justice. I mean, yeah. that feels right. Because the fact that he was sharing debate strategy, Joe Biden wouldn't have known And this that. was a lowly assistant, not Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> you know? And yet here, I mean... Yeah, um, I mean, look, it's horrible journalistically. I'm trying to figure out what the crime is. Yeah, now. I was going to ask you. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, there's got to be more to that story. I mean, it's not necessarily a crime. It's horrible journalistic practice to do this. It goes to the intent. Perhaps there was a lie to an FBI investigator or something that would give it a criminal hook. So, um, but yeah, look, if how this becomes relevant in the defamation lawsuit is you say, look, here's their motives laid bare. They're not trying to play it down the middle. This is the argument that, that Dominion's going to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hate to be the person to bring this up, but it's not as if there hasn't been other examples of what exactly what we're talking about with other networks, including this one with Donna Brazile and the rumors that she gave questions to Hillary Clinton. But then you do lose your job. But you do lose your job, exactly. After that, because but, it's unethical. But what happens to the viewers? They start thinking you're just like them. And so my, when I think about this story in particular, and I think about these quotes, and I go, okay, where well, Brian Williams lied about the bodies floating down the street in New Orleans, and he still got a show, right? We've seen other examples of credible journalists being caught in the lie. So I think we're at a point in our industry, in a way, where we need to have a come to somebody meeting. It could be Jesus or whoever your spiritual guide is, but we need to get back to defining what objectivity is defining what opinion is and making sure those lines aren't blurred anymore. I hear what you're saying, LZ, and I think that that's a good point. And I understand that the trust in media is low, but those that you're describing didn't lead to an insurrection. No, you're right. And so, I mean, the level that these laws and how pervasive they were and how much they ginned up the audience was worse than what Brian Williams said. I, I, I agree 100%. I'm just saying in terms of viewership, how do you tell that to a viewer that his lies are worse than those lies? I get you. All right. Thank you all very much. Next, the creator of the workplace comic, Dilbert, has been, well, let go from several newspapers after a racist rant that he posted on YouTube. Uh, He knew what he was doing. So why is he the victim? Of course, you know the longtime cartoon Dilbert. It's been around for more than 30 years. Well, now newspapers across the country are dropping Dilbert after its creator, Scott Adams, went on a racist rant in which he said, and I'm quoting, the advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people, end quote. Joining me now, Elsie Granderson, former professional tennis player Patrick McEnroe, Jessica Washington, senior reporter for The Root, and Mark McKinnon. 
Should I play mm. more of what he said? I mean, should I just... Yes. Pl- is it Australian? <laughs> yeah, no, it's just... It's, no, it's in America. Should I play more? Yeah. Are we good with that? Yes. Okay, all right, here we go. Here's another thought from his rant. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. Right, this can't be fixed. You just have to escape. Wow. I mean, Jessica, I barely know where to begin. <laughs> there is a lot to say there. I mean, I just can't believe you would go on a public platform and say something like this, especially when you have so much to lose. You know you've had this popular comic for 30 years. You must know what you're saying is incredibly racist. There's no other way to spin that. So I just can't imagine you have this career that you care about theoretically and then you're going to go and say this. It must be what you really feel. And we'll get to the fallout for him in a minute. But before we get to the fallout, I want to talk about what he was responding to, which are these cockamamie... Um, poll, alleged poll questions. I don't know what on earth, what reputable poll on earth would ask these questions, Mark, Mm -hmm. but here here they are. First question, do you agree or disagree with the statement, it's okay to be white? What does that even mean? I mean, that is basically the respondents, uh, just over half agreed, and 21% said they don't know because they don't know. How do you answer that question? I mean, it's so ripe for misinterpretation. Oh, completely. I mean, it's so flawed. I mean, first of all, there's two ways to interpret that. Is, is it okay for white people to be white? Right. There's also, you could be, if you, are, if you are a black respondent saying, is it okay for me to acculturate and be white, right? That would be one way to it read it. It could be anything. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it could be the, a white person. A is it okay to be white? Sample. I don't. And, it, and the history of this, this saying, you know, is, is from a white supremacist uh, right. catfish. This is a Rasmussen poll. We don't use Rasmussen at CNN because it just doesn't. The methodology doesn't meet standard polling standards. So the, fir- the question itself is cockamamie. And now we know why CNN doesn't use Absolutely, it, but, but we've I, always known it. I it, mean, they're, they're, they're baiting people. It, it's completely. I mean, that's, that's, that's another layer to this whole issue. The first layer is I actually have to admit I followed Scott Adams on Twitter. Okay, and I would watch, you know, he does these coffee chats in the morning. And I remember literally a couple of days ago watching this, and I'm like, did he, what, did he just say that? What, I mean, what exactly could he possibly be thinking? Had I mean, you ever heard him say I never heard objectionable him say anything like before? that. I know he's sort of got a con, you know, conservative slant to him and to the different things he talks about. I try to follow people of all different backgrounds to, you know, f- hear what's out there. But when I heard that, it was just bizarre. And then the aftermath of it, he said... Well, now I'm being canceled. You know, that, that's, the, that's my punishment. I'm like, dude, I mean, because of the First Amendment. Because the First Amendment means something else. I said, well, you've got the right to say whatever you want, but so do magazines and newspapers and us have the right to then react to what you said, yeah. including those people it's that called the free put his market. comment. Exactly. And if they don't think that, that he represents what they want their audience of to course. buy, they don't need to write. By the way, you can still get the Dilbert... Cartoon at Dilbert.com. So he's not being canceled. <laughs> well, I don't believe canceling exists to begin with. I believe in accountability. 
and I believe in people using the phrase cancel culture to hide accountability, mm-hmm. but I actually can't think of anyone who's been canceled, particularly canceled by black people, because if we really were canceling things, I don't think Dilbert would be high on the list. <laughs> you know? like, like I'm, I'm just saying, I didn't know it was a thing until the story came out. So it's just sort of like you're, you're giving us a lot of credit for power we don't possess, because if we possess the power, I think a lot of things in Congress would be different. I think right. a lot of things legislatively would think, I think reparations would have already happened if we had that much power. Instead, you're thinking, is Dilbert that we're all after? I really don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) He says, uh, so here's his response. Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, says, an obvious question for those who canceled me is, do they disagree with my point? So far, I have not seen it. I only see disagreement with my use of hyperbole. That's how far in his own echo chamber he is. He doesn't see anybody who disagrees (laughs) with his point. Well, here it is. Here it is, uh, Scott. You don't have to look that Plenty far. Plenty of people who disagree with him. And what I just have to say is companies making a decision about who they want to platform and including racist language is one of the things that they want to think about before they decide, hey, there's only a few amount of people who we're going to put in the Washington Post, who we're going to put in the LA Times. And we want those people to represent our values to a certain extent. That is not canceling anybody. That is deciding that we have a limited amount of space and we're going to use it in a way that feels appropriate and respectful. And there is nothing wrong with that. The USA Today um, CEO was uh, quite clear about it. Here's what he said. He said the decision was easy. It was, frankly, uh, an easy decision. We found the remarks, you know, hateful, hurtful, and and they just crossed the line. Look, we, we believe in free speech. We believe in creating uh, a place for differing points of view, but there's a line that gets crossed where things become racism. And, and that's not a, an, an area we choose to, to traffic in or participate in. Does that gentleman look like, sound like he's leading a woke mob? <laughs> <laughs> I did appreciate the color palette, though. I was admiring the combination there. You know, racism is free speech. You know, if you say something racist, that still falls under the First Amendment. You're still covered under free speech. So I I just think that a lot of people who have these sort of mindset, if you will, mm-hmm. aren't used to the fact that having someone respond to that racism is also free speech. And yeah. that the repercussions of your statements fall under free speech as well. It, it's just remarkable that he can live in this place. He's obviously been an incredibly successful guy talking about cult, what's happening in the corporate world and the corporate offices, and he's been hugely successful. And then to be so brain dead to think that people, no one disagrees with what he's saying or, or he hasn't heard of what, what I guess he's not watching CNN. I guess not. <laughs> I, mean, I, guess, not at the moment. I, I, I mean, I don't even understand what his, his, uh, interaction with the real world is if he thinks that people don't disagree with him. I don't know what his interaction is, but I will say this about the recent history of this country. What he said has played out. You know, that's the white flight of this country, right? In urban cities, they got away from people of color for a variety of reasons, but that was the impetus. So what he is saying is from an era of this country that is documented in our mm-hmm. history it's the simple fact that he is saying it as if he's still living in that history as opposed to where we are today. Friends, thank you very much. Now to this, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis getting ready to launch his new book. What he really wants readers to know about the real him, we'll discuss next.
All right, tonight, Donald Trump's biggest Republican rival thus far is making moves in what may be a soft launch of his bid for the White House. Governor Ron DeSantis is putting out a new book titled The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. And it focuses on his culture war battles against what he calls wokeness and woke corporations. Several of the party's biggest donors are cutting him seven-figure checks ahead of a potential 2024 run. We're back with LZ Granderson, Patrick McEnroe, Molly Jongfast joins us, and Mark McKinnon. Okay, guys, let me do another reading. That's all the rage tonight. Which accent? Um, no, I'm just going to use mine. Um, I've learned my lesson. Um, okay, so this is this is about, you know, the woke battles that he prides himself on. So this is from Governor DeSantis' new book. Uh, the battles we have fought in Florida from defeating the biomedical security state, I think he means to stifling woke corporations, to fighting indoctrination in schools, strike at the heart of what it means to be a Floridian and an American. Mark, this is his calling card. I mean, this is what he's staking his brand on. 100 percent. And it's all about grievance. And by the way, it's a lot of it is COVID related. And that's really launched him. He's gotten to the right of Donald Trump on COVID and he's attacking Trump on COVID uh, for being too permissive about the the vaccines and the shutting down of government. So that's that's created an opening for Ron DeSantis. And, you know, listen, it says a lot that this guy has turned a swing state reliably red now. He won Miami by 20 points. Hillary Clinton won it by 20 points. That's how much of a swing it was. So, I mean, there's a reason why there's Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and then in distant and so if he can do it in Florida, can he do it in the U.S.? In other words, is Florida a test case for what across the U.S.? They would respond to the same things or is Florida unique in some way? Well, no, I, I, listen, I think the Republican base is responding well beyond Florida. And I think he's got a blueprint that he's going to roll out. And I think he's got potentially very, you know, a ton of, of potential in the Republican primaries. The question is, has he tacked too far down that woke well to run in a general election and be successful. But I also, I just don't understand how you sell Trumpism without Trump, right? Like, this is a less charismatic guy who's not as funny and not as entertaining, and he's going to somehow convince the Trumpy base that they should love him instead of the guy who created Trumpism? Well, some but, people but what used they do to like say, is he's a fighter. He's, he's pugnacious. Yeah, they, they like the fighter aspect. I agree with that. But also what some people used to say when Trump was president was, yeah, I object to him. I object to his style. I don't like all the coarseness, but I do like his policies. Mm-hmm. And so if you feel that way, yeah, then you get I, I don't this. think that's true. I, well, I think that's exactly where he's coming from, though, because I think exactly, Allison, you're spot on. I've, I had, I've had so many people come up to me over the last few years and said, you know, love Trump's policies loved this, some of the things he was trying to do on immigration and cutting taxes and all these different things. But it would just get, get rid of the personality of Trump. But, but now you've got a guy in DeSantis who's, in my view, even maybe even smarter. He's certainly more calculating He's than, Trump. than Trump. Trump, Trump yeah. is throwing a lot of stuff out there, gets him in the trouble, also gets him a lot of people that like him because of that. Because to me, he feels authentic. DeSantis feels, to me, very calculating yeah. and, and extremely smart which I find also extremely scary. But he's Jeb Bush without the charisma. I'm so glad you brought Mm -hmm. up Jeb Bush because I was very interested to hear today that um, Jeb Bush, well, it wasn't today. I guess it might have aired today, but in any event, on a Fox special, Jeb seems to be a fan. So here he is. Is this Ron DeSantis' opportunity to run for higher office? I think it is. He's been a really effective governor. He's young. I think we're on the verge of a generational change in our politics. I kind of hope so. I think it's time for a more forward-leaning, future-oriented 
uh, conversation in our politics as well. Lots of headlines, LZ, are calling that an endorsement. I don't know if that's an endorsement, but he seems to be a fan. I don't know if it's an endorsement. If it is an endorsement, who cares? Because the Bush <laughs> family has been basically kicked out of the Republican Party in terms of power anyway. To me, that looks more like a person who's trying to latch on to someone who has a train moving in a certain direction mm-hmm. because he's been jettisoned mm-hmm. from his party. His son has been jettisoned from his party. The family is basically out of the Republican Party in terms of power. This seems like a play to try to say, hey, don't forget about us. We can help you if you bring us in. As far as DeSantis versus Trump is concerned, look, one, they both have charisma, right? We all have charisma. It's who you're charismatic to that matters. And I believe that DeSantis is charismatic enough to Trump voters that it will work. You don't have to fully be Trump. You just need to be enough to attract Trump voters. And I think he does that. My question is, though, I don't know. Trump is not going to go quietly. So you don't have... Trump being like, oh, vote for DeSantis. He's got my endorsement. I can't possibly win. Trump is going to just go after DeSantis. Yeah. Well, yes, well, well yes, to your will. point about Bush, the Bush family, it was Trump that got him kicked out of yeah. the Republican Party. So he's going to absolutely try to do the same with DeSantis. And what, what do you think about Jeb being a fan of DeSantis? Well, I, I think he sees the writing on the wall and he knows that Trump can't win. And he thinks that DeSantis can. And he's a generational candidate. He'd be a much better candidate. I mean, Trump is the, the human Hindenburg floating <laughs> over the Republican Party. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they all know. I mean, people, you know, who, who have half a brain in the Republican Party understand that Trump is a, a loser. I mean, he, he lost not only an election, a presidential reelect, but he lost the House and the Senate for the first time in 100 years. Um, let's talk a little bit about another candidate who has not uh, yet thrown his hat fully in the ring, and that's Joe Biden. And there's um, an interesting piece in The Atlantic by Mark Leibovich who talks about that the headline is the case for a primary challenge to Joe Biden. There must be some free-thinking Democrat who's willing to get in the race. Anybody have any thoughts on I it? I love it. I think, it's, I, I think he's exactly right. I think it'd be good for the party. I think it'd be good for Biden to have somebody out there challenging him and keeping, you know, you want some spring training at the very least. Well, Marianne and, Williamson's in already. Sure. I, yeah, I, let's I, not I, do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to necessarily say that President Biden should have run for re-election. But I do think it is important that we remember some of the lessons, particularly from the Democratic Party, when it comes to individuals who perhaps are holding positions of power beyond an extended period of time and what that could do going forward. So, But, I mean, you're I, allowed to have two terms. You are allowed to have two terms, and I'm not suggesting he should not take advantage of that. He certainly has a record to run on. Yeah. My question is, how do you continue to call yourself the party of the future when you continue to present that's leaders a, of the that's past? That's exactly right, and that's why it was so great when Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer handed over mm-hmm. the baton to a new generation of leadership. Biden said during the campaign that he intended to be a transitional it, president. It, it'd be right? nice to see a, a lot of politicians do that. But you know, I hand it over. And I, I don't see that happen very often on the Republican right. or the Democratic right. side. But I would argue, you know, the voters chose Biden. They like him, right? A lot of people in the pundit class didn't like him. A lot of pieces like this were written. And then in the midterms, Biden, like, really ran the table in a way that none of us thought he would. Here's what Mark Leibovich has to say about that. He says <laughs> his party overperformed in the midterms. He seems to be humming along fine. Feisty State of the Union here, muscular visit to Ukraine there, and endless jokers to the right. (laughs) He has achieved important things, has clearly enjoyed the gig, and appears quite eager for more. The difference in Biden's case, of course, goes directly to the second reason for his special predicament. It begins with an eight. His age. Yeah. Yeah. His age. I mean, and that's a real conversation to be having. I honestly believe that Joe Biden has done plenty 
to substantiate his desire to run for re-election. But it's not about whether or not you should. It's whether or not what does the party need and what does the country need. And I think personally, if he were to not run for re-election, he will go out with cheers. Why? Exactly. Look right. at what he's accomplished. Exactly right. Look the, at the, what he's accomplished. Yeah, the problem is who could take his place. That's I, the problem. And that's I think not that, a problem. That that's not well, It's not a problem. I mean, it's the election win okay, let me, let me correct list. myself. Who can win? Right. I who think can that, win? Because Biden. I think a lot of people could beat Ron DeSantis that Joe Biden can't. I mean, I also think that Biden versus Trump, they have a four-year age difference. So. I mean, if that's the way it plays again, and no well, one wants on being to Trump see then. that again. I you're mean, be- that's a big I, bet on it being Trump. I'm yeah, just and, saying. I, and I don't want a person versus person. I want an ideas versus idea. I think this is what the midterm election actually said, was that people want to talk about ideas, legislation. How are you going to help me? Listen, Mark, Mark's point is not that he shouldn't run. He's just saying that other people should run. Um, tell us about the circus while we have you. And you're, is it... Uh, Focusing on DeSantis? Well, it is. It's focusing on the Republican Party and DeSantis and CPAC, which, you know, of course, is the mm-hmm. annual convention mm-hmm. that where Trump initially got his initial attention back in, two, in 2010, 11, 12, you know, became the sort of, you know, the, the launching pad for Donald Trump and, and, well, Donald Trump specifically. But the interesting thing is that DeSantis is not going this week. Mm-hmm. Mike Pence is not going. So does CPAC mean what it used to mean? And what kind of a... What kind of a reception will Donald Trump get now at CPAC and will it have the same impact that it had? So it's 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 the Disneyland for Republicans mm-hmm. uh, and it'll be very colorful. A lot of people going. And but it's it's a great place. to. But I mean, it, with DeSantis's book coming out in CPAC, this is kind of the starting gun for the Republican. Don't primary. say Disney and DeSantis in the same. <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for those uh, perspectives. OK, what's your first reaction these days? When someone calls you on the phone, do are you annoyed? <laughs> are you upset that somebody is calling instead of texting? The proper phone etiquette for 2023. Next. Is it rude to call someone on the phone? <laughs> That's the question Miss Manners tackles this morning in the Washington Post. So what does our panel think? I hadn't it hadn't even occurred to me that this was possible, but I have noticed that for the past oh probably 5 years, I am annoyed when someone calls me on the phone. But I thought it was just me and I didn't know why I was annoyed, but it turns out that something has shifted in our culture and now we're annoyed when the phone it, rings. It's, it, 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 this it's happened to me, I mean, it was like 15 years ago when I was covering Wimbledon for ESPN, as we do every year. And I was communicating with some, with some British people, you know, in London. And don't call me. I mean, it was, it, they were so far ahead of us. It was like, just te- everything was text. And I was like, God, this is weird. And now, you know, call my wife. Someone said, should I call your wife? I said, there's no chance she's going to answer the phone. <laughs> Send her the text. So the best thing to do when you want to talk to someone is say, when are you free? Mm-hmm. By text. Yeah, by text. Yep. Send the text. What time are you available? What's a good time? I'm free between 2 and uh, 2.45. Right. Let's talk then. And then chances that are they seems, still won't answer. But still, but, but, at least you tried. Hope for yes, the best. I totally agree. That's a good etiquette. Elsie, do you like when people call you on the phone? No. <laughs> but that's a very specific reason. Because I get so few phone calls, there's only two people who are calling me, really. My son is scam likely. <laughs> Those are the two people. And my son calls me like once every three to four days. So scam likely calls me a lot. So I'm already irritated because I'm assuming it's a spam call to begin with. Right. 
Although the government's doing something right, because now it comes up as a spam. That is yeah. Thank so goodness. they've got that yeah. down. Yeah, do people call you? Do you, Are you happy when they call you? I mean, I think it is sort of old-fashioned that people are texting each other to ask them if they can call. Consent. Right? Yes, it's like something out of the 17th century. We're writing each other That's notes right. to ask if we can call on the phone. No, Dear I'm Mr. Darcy, may I call you later? I'm delighted to get a phone call, and I have lots of children, and I'm always delighted to hear from them. So. How many do you have? I have three, but they're okay. teenagers, so whatever they call me, they I'm call. just delighted. No, I'm excited when my kids call. They're in a different category. When my teenagers call, I'm delighted. And also, anyone who I knew before texting was a thing is grandfathered in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So any of my high school friends right. can call me. That's fine. We wow. have, yeah, for sure, we have a history of calling each right. other. But after texting was a thing, <laughs> I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> I, I text and ask if I can send a letter. <laughs> that's, that's real old school there. That's real old school. Or a telegram. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Are you annoyed when people call you? Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, it's, I just find it so much more efficient uh, to, to text, and, 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 you know, I can't remember the last time I talked to my What's daughters What's your number, the by phone. the way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely with teenagers. I have three teenage daughters. Texting's the way to go. You want to get them to pay attention? Call, and they're like, look, and they'll see your oh, it's dad. Nah. It's just yeah. efficient. I mean, this way, at least I know. Right. If, if somebody sets up a text to call, I know if somebody actually want to talk. That's right. All right. Good. We're all in agreement. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, it's all the rage at the box office. Cocaine bear... Pulling in $23 million over the weekend. But wait till you see how the story all started. This morning in Knoxville, Tennessee. There's more this out there. They dumped it somewhere. It made $23 million in its opening weekend. That's right. Americans spent $23 million to watch a movie about a bear on cocaine. And when a 175-pound black bear does a whole lot of cocaine, well, things go exactly the way you'd think. Apex predator. High on cocaine. Out of his mind. All right, well, it turns out that this whole crazy story is loosely based on a true story. This happened in the 80s, of course, (laughs) when a black bear died of an overdose on cocaine. So we went digging in the news archives and found this real 1985 report from our affiliate, WXIA. The 200-pound bear fell victim to one of three duffel bags full of cocaine dropped in North Georgia and Knoxville, Tennessee three months ago when parachutist and reputed drug smuggler Andrew Thornton plunged to his death. Thornton's parachute failed to open. He had 77 pounds of cocaine strapped on him. GBI agents found a second bag a short time later. They ran across the dead bear in Fannin County last week while looking for the third bag what they believe to be the last of the Thornton badge. Bear probably uh, uh, got an initial rush and uh, perhaps became disoriented uh, and somewhat confused because of the sensation. But cocaine acts fairly rapidly in the central nervous system and in large quantities depresses the heart. And it's quite likely then that uh, the bear had uh, difficulty breathing and difficulty 
maintaining his heart rate and uh, essentially uh, died uh, slowly. The medical examiner says the bear had been dead for at least six weeks. GBI agents recovered none of the cocaine. They say it could have been blown away by the wind or simply dissolved. One thing's for sure, the bear did not eat 75 pounds of the stuff. Patricia Hunt, 11 Alive News. Okay, that's some old school nice, local wow, news nice right there. That was nice awesome. He looked just like John Oates. Remember a couple of days ago, there was a mystery of the white dust floating in the air somewhere. Where was that in the country? There was. A I think it's fl- called snow. <laughs> no, this is something else. But you know, there, there's so many things in this country that are happening that I, I look at, and I, you know, I, I, it upsets you a little bit as someone who you know loves this country, and then I see this. That somebody can come up with this idea, <laughs> and I say, "God bless America." You know? I mean, this unbelievable. Is, what is the magic of cocaine bear? Why is everybody running out to the theaters to see this? This is stupid. <laughs> I saw the Meg in theaters twice. <laughs> Giant oh, shark twice. from prehistoric days chasing around people, eating boats the whole night. It was dumb as hell, and I loved every minute of it. That's awesome. I, I think that's part of the power yeah. of it. It's so ridiculous. I mean, it's like a really good bad B movie, you know? It's just like, yeah, get cocaine and a bear. Let's go. I mean, Molly, you're an intellectual heavyweight. You can't wait to see this. You can't wait to see this movie. I'm taking my kids this weekend. It's, there's a place for stupid in American culture. It's very yeah, it's wide. politics. It, ha- yes, it happens to be a very wide lane. And, you know, I'll be cocaine bearers right in there. You know? And think of all the sequels. No, I mean, it's funny. I would be interested if I thought it were just a dark comedy. But it's actually a slasher film, which makes it less appealing to me. Like, there are moments where you have to be like, ah! And it's scary. But the bear is the slasher. Yes. Which they would be whether they were on cocaine or not. Right. It's a nature film. It's actually getting very very good reviews. It's getting very good reviews. And Elizabeth Banks, I mean, she's terrific. And I think it's great that she took this on. (laughs) (laughs) She's the director, and she said that what sold the project to her was the name alone. Yes. Cocaine Cocaine Bear. What more? That's your pitch. You don't need anything else. Cocaine Bear. Okay, sold. Sold. Yeah, the end. All right. Thank you all very much. Okay, now to this. The debate over the origins of coronavirus is back in the spotlight after a Department of Energy low-confidence assessment that, yes, it could have leaked from the Chinese lab. But the intelligence community is still split about what actually happened, so we're going to break down all of the latest for you next. A new assessment from the U.S. Energy Department is reviving the debate over the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Department of Energy says the virus likely came from a lab leak in Wuhan, China. That's where the first cases of the virus appeared. But sources tell CNN that it's a low-confidence assessment and the minority view within the intelligence community. Four other U.S. intel agencies believe it's likely the outbreak started after the virus jumped from an animal to humans. I want to bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, great to see you. So let's talk about where we are tonight. So there are two leading theories, basically the theory that the about the origins of the coronavirus, either it spread from animals Mm -hmm. to humans in the wild or it leaked from a lab in Wuhan. What type of evidence would prove it one way or the other? 
Well, you know, first of all, I should point out that the labs that we're talking about here, Allison, um, they have studied coronaviruses for a long time. That, that is not new information. I mean, reporters who've been covering this know that. In fact, one of the lead researchers in the lab there in Wuhan uh, is Xi Zhengli, and known as the Bat Lady. Uh, she's known as that because she's been studying bats and coronaviruses really since the days of SARS, so for some 20 years. So that is not new information. What I think we need to know is were the coronaviruses that were being studied in the lab similar, identical, or related to the virus that caused COVID? And you'd want to look at the, the actual viruses and do genetic sequencing of those viruses. Another thing that you could do, Allison, is there were, there were blood samples that were taken from workers in the lab at that time. If you were able to go back and look at those blood samples and say, did they show antibodies to the, to the COVID virus, then that would be another pretty, pretty definitive piece of data. And then, you know, you'd obviously want to have a, a complete forensics investigation of the lab. But it's these things, these types of things that we don't have still. That's been the lack of transparency that so many people have been talking about. I think the answer to the question I think everyone is asking is knowable. Um, but we don't know it because we don't have all the data. Mm. And Sanjay, it's interesting because you've even spoken with some scientists who worked in Wuhan. What did they say about how hard it is to get information in China? Well, I, they say it's really hard. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because there was this World Health Organization investigation. I talked to Peter Daszak, who also runs EcoHealth Alliance, uh, uh, an organization that was doing research in Wuhan. So he had sort of two hats that he was wearing, but he was part of that investigative team for the WHO. And I specifically asked about the database, right? There's a database of all the viruses that are being studied. If that database is there and you can go back and look and see how closely did the viruses approximate the COVID virus, that would be really good information. So I asked him specifically about that. Listen to him. Have you been able now then as a member of this WHO team or in any capacity to look at that data? No. That sounds concerning, Peter. If it is as serious and we're trying to be as thorough as possible, maybe it mounts to nothing. But I think the fact that you still haven't seen that database, it's just, it's just going to raise a lot of eyebrows as we go forward. Well, rightly so. I think that you know, China should be more open about the things that they've, uh, that they've not released. So one of the most basic things that you would look for as a part of a, an investigation, again, the database, what was being studied in those labs, that wasn't available to the World Health Organization team, Allison, and they weren't allowed to go back in after that first investigation. So we still don't, we still don't know. And then, Sanjay, you've also spoken to several U.S. health officials who support the lab leak theory, and they cast skepticism also on the outbreak mm. timeline. So what have they told you? Well, so this is, this is very interesting, and we're talking about Robert Redfield here, who was CDC director, Allison, you'll remember, and that's important because he probably had access to information that maybe the general public did not have at the time uh, that he was CDC director. I talked to him right after he left office, and he was pretty forthcoming about his thoughts on this, still speculative, but interesting reasoning. Take a listen. I do not believe this somehow came from a bat to a human. Normally when a pathogen goes from a zoonotic to a human, it takes a while for it to figure out how to become more and more efficient in human-to-human -human transmission. I just don't think this makes biological sense. 
So, you know, he, he is saying he does not think it makes biological sense. But again, uh, Allison, he, he did have access to information that most people did not have access to. So it was a more informed opinion. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, when a virus starts to, to um, sort of spread in humans, usually is not very contagious. It becomes increasingly contagious as it spreads more and more. This, this uh, virus, according to Dr. Redfield, really started spreading like wildfire right away, suggesting to him at least it had been being studied in a lab and slowly becoming increasingly contagious in a lab before it accidentally leaked. Speculative, but interesting. Yeah, he makes a very compelling case, I think, and he always has been. I mean, he was out front with this theory before other people were. Yes, he um, was. Sanjay, thanks for explaining all of that. Really helpful. You got it. Thank you. The White House is also weighing in on the Energy Department's assessment that COVID-19 most likely came from a lab leak in China. Here's National Security Council coordinator John Kirby on CNN earlier tonight. Uh, What I can tell you is that there is no consensus uh, among the intelligence community or elsewhere in the government on exactly how COVID uh, originated. But we want to know, the president wants to know, because he wants to be able to put us in a position where we can better prevent uh, another pandemic. Okay, joining me now to discuss all of this with the latest, we have Los Angeles Times op-ed columnist L.Z. Granderson, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, special correspondent for Vanity Fair Molly Jean-Fast, and former Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones and political commentator Scott Jennings. Okay, so tell us, um, John, how does, how, why is the intel community divided and how does that work when they're divided? Are they looking at different evidence? Well, they're looking at the same evidence and the National Intelligence Council, which is like the the, the gray beards of the intelligence community, the experts of the experts, um, pull all this together. And they said what John Kirby said, which is the intelligence community can't agree with this. So they looked at this in 2021. Um, I think it was four intelligence agencies, including the National Intelligence Council, believed it came from an animal, probably in the market. One intelligence agency, now stay with me here, <laughs> decided with moderate confidence, the FBI, that it probably came from the lab um, based on that, you know, the power and speed with which it spread. Um, and now the Department of Energy has come over to say, uh, with low confidence, they agree. Now, you are likely to win the Powerball jackpot next week, I assess, with low confidence. <laughs> That's how likely that is. Hmm. So you can have out of 16 intelligence agencies, mm-hmm. some of them didn't look at this, the Coast Guard and you know people like that don't weigh in because it's not their field. But out of the core group that weighed in, you can have people looking at the same intelligence who disagree on the finding that they would make from it and the level of confidence they would put behind okay, that Okay, that's finding. fair. So in other words, the Department of Energy, mm-hmm. with their new assessment, at least to us, has not seen something new. Well, they, that, or have they? So that they, others haven't. They updated their assessment based on some new intelligence, but... I wouldn't and we make, don't know what that is. And we don't know what that is, but I wouldn't make that big a deal of it because it didn't cause all the other agencies to sway over. So it's something that to the Department of Energy scientists was the nuance that moved them from assessing one thing to maybe another, but with low confidence, which is a difference without a distinction. Scott, I want to bring you in because I don't have to tell you how many people poo-pooed the lab leak theory, it turns out, prematurely. Yeah, completely. Uh, you had a lot of conservatives at the time uh, that this was all breaking, like Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, is one, and but many others. 
and they were, you know, made fun of. They were mocked as conspiracy theorists. But we saw this on a number of fronts, you know, masks, lockdowns, natural immunity. Now this lab leak theory, you had a number of people who were simply saying, I'm skeptical or I have questions about this. And there were, you know, everybody in the media, the Democratic Party, the left came down on people like a ton of bricks uh, for even simply raising questions. And so today you have a lot of conservatives saying, ha ha, how the turntables <laughs> and, and, and saying it was right of us to ask questions. And I think what everybody wants to know is why were so many people so invested in shutting down anyone who simply raised a question about this or those other things I mentioned at the time. That's what conservatives want to know. And I think this has really reduced public confidence, frankly, in what you're hearing, you know, about some of these public health issues, given, you know, how much is different today than what we were told two years ago. No, Scott, I mean, it, it's still, the jury's still out. I mean, the jury is still out. But I, I grant you that the Department of Energy saying this lends a lot more credence than certainly headlines suggested, as you say, when they were mocking people. But the jury's still out. We actually don't know what the origin is still. Yeah, but what my point is, when people were simply raising questions about it, they were called kooks, they were called quacks, they were called conspiracy theorists for even raising the possibility that this might have come out of a lab. And now you have intelligence agencies saying, yeah, it might have. I agree. We're, by the way, we're never going to know the answer to this because the Chinese government will never allow anyone mm -hmm. to have access or transparency <coughs> here to the facts that will lead us to know. We'll never know the answer, but it is a distinct possibility as acknowledged now two years after the fact uh, when cer certain people were raising it and being shouted down in the public square. Yeah. I think this is really unfair, Scott, to put together masking and vaccines with the lab leak. I mean, again, we don't know what happened, whether or not it was a lab leak, but we certainly know that masking helps prevent people from getting sick. We know that horse to wormer doesn't work on COVID. I mean, there were certainly a lot of COVID misinformation and the number one spreader of COVID misinformation you will remember in 2021 or even before that was Donald Trump, right? I mean, so I don't think that, I don't necessarily think that these two things, I think you're confabulating a lot of different things. Okay, hold on, let me get Mondarin, go. Look, I, I will be pissed if I were to find out, along with the rest of the public, that this was because of a lab leak, because I do feel like uh, we have been disabused of this theory uh, by by, by agencies who had downplayed so the like possibility w, the of WHO, it. for instance. I mean, who else was saying? Because I I remember. I mean, first of all, it was Joe Biden who who said, "Please continue this investigation to the Department of Energy." Absolutely. And it was Dr. Redfield, as we just heard, uh, you know, former CDC director, who said that he believed it was a lab leak. So who was doing the disabusing? I think I think there was a downplaying of it. I mean, I had heard uh, a number of. Uh, reports from different agencies saying that it's unlikely to have been a lab leak. Having said that, I have a distinct, uh, you know, diff distinctly different recollection from Scott when it comes to uh, the claims that were being made by people like Tom Cotton out of Arizona and others in the Republican Party. It wasn't s simply asking questions. It was it was stating with confidence. People were really speaking with their chest that that this had to have been a, a, a Chinese conspiracy to to. Uh, and, you know, infect the, the American people and in, in, in the world, in fact, uh, through biological warfare. And, and that that was uncomfortable for me because no one had a basis to believe that without more evidence. Um, LZ, before I let you say this, I just want to remind people in July of 2021, you know, I'll just let it speak for itself. Here's John Stewart on Stephen Colbert. Science 
has in many ways helped ease uh, the suffering of this pandemic, uh, which was more than likely caused by science. (laughs) There's a novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. Can I, let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, wait a second. What about second. this? What about wait this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. There you go, Elsie. Hello, John Stewart. Can we just, can we just get that out of the way? <laughs> I think he assessed I that mean, with high confidence. Right? I know, it does seem like high confidence right there. Listen. I don't think that my obsession or concern when it comes to COVID is really on where it began, but as much as how our response was to it. Because, yes, we can certainly talk about the very beginnings of this virus, but the reason why the messaging got conflated and confused and very difficult for people to disseminate is because people was purposely trying to downplay the impact of this virus. And that's early in 2020, and Scott knows this, and we all know this. Oh, this is a fluke. It'll be gone. It's not that big of a deal. It'll be done by the summer. Well, All that's this was one reason. I mean, I but, think that's one reason. But I think everyone was always interested in the origins. Yeah, no, but, people were. But people were fighting about it. But but when you when you start talking about the response to it, and then you start talking about where it came from, that all gets conflated together. That's where the racism came in from. Mm. That's where the increase in Asian American attacks came from, mm-hmm. because people started conflating this is where it's from with who's giving the messaging that it's not that big of a deal. And it is a big of a deal. And like they did it. And now these people are saying, oh, well, all people from this country, mm-hmm. all people who look like from this country are responsible for what's happened to the planet. So I think there's a, we need to splice apart the beginnings of COVID with our response from COVID. I think Scott's talking a lot about the response and not enough about the beginnings of it. Well, I mean, I think that we're all, I think we're all trying to talk about the origins of it. And I think Scott makes a great point that people felt certain before we knew certainly, and we may never know certainly. But to your point, your final point, because we have to go, is that in the intel com- community, you need to have an open mind. That's rule number one. That's true. And we saw that in the anthrax case, right? Mm-hmm. We looked at Saddam Hussein. This was right after 9-11. We looked at al-Qaeda. We looked at a couple of suspects who, you know, we really took them apart. I was in the FBI at the time. It turned out to be a U.S. government scientist in a U.S. government lab who wanted extra funding. Yeah. Okay, thank you all very much. Meanwhile, is there a takeover in the works in one of America's blackest big cities? Next, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, is here to talk about the battle pitting his city against the GOP-dominated state government. This is about voting rights, about public safety, about crime, about race. We'll be right back.
A proposed bill is sparking accusations of a takeover in Jackson, Mississippi. State House Republicans there sponsoring a bill this month that would essentially create a new court system for the city designed by white conservative state officials. Jackson, Mississippi is 83% black, one of America's blackest big cities. A state Senate committee passed a different version of this bill that takes out some of the most controversial elements, but those provisions could be added back in during negotiations. Supporters of the bill say it's about addressing the growing crime in the city, but the mayor of Jackson calls this, quote, colonization and apartheid. And Mayor Chokwe Lumumba joins me now. Mayor, thanks so much for being here. Can you explain what this is? What would happen if this bill passes? Well, I, first of all, I appreciate the time and appreciate you lifting up this issue. Uh, I think that we have a number of dynamics at play. Uh, this bill is a thinly veiled attempt to uh, create uh, a circumstance of, uh, of, of continued police abuse. Uh, in the last six months of 2022, uh, there were at least seven uh, media reported incidents of Capitol Police involved incidents uh, of shootings uh, with the officers. Uh, it is a voting rights abuse uh, where judges will be appointed, not elected by the residents, uh, where prosecuted, prosecutors will be appointed and not hired by uh, the district attorney who is elected. Uh, it is equivalent to Jim Crow 2.0, uh, where it is a state-sponsored system of uh, stripping people of both political, uh, political power uh, and and voting rights uh, ability. As you know, the people who sponsor it say this is necessary because um, crime has gotten so bad. So they need to set up these other legal guardrails. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there has been a deliberate indifference uh, and a willful neglect of the things that the city of Jackson has asked for in order to contend with the issues of public safety. Uh, things like additional uh, supports, uh, in terms of ballistic technology for our police department, uh, in terms of support of our uh, real-time crime center, which is a 21st century mechanism to support our police officers, uh, in terms of alternatives uh, to support uh, public safety, such as our violence interruption and credible messenger programs. Uh, we've gone through extreme measures engaging people like Wells Fargo Bank and the National League of Cities that has given us seed money to create an Office of Violence Prevention and Trauma Recovery all while the state of Mississippi has avoided that and instead uh, proposed this takeover, which allows judges to have uh, jurisdiction over civil matters that has nothing to do uh, with the issue of crime and public safety. Uh, while initially uh, drafting a jurisdiction or a district which largely covers the most densely populated white portions of the city uh, and the areas of the city that have the lowest rate of crime. Uh, and so it is a Trojan horse uh, that comes in the name of public safety, uh, but is actually an attack on black leadership. Here's what one of the sponsors has to say about it. This is state rep Trey Lamar, a Republican. He says this bill is totally racially neutral. It is only designed to assist the court systems in Hines County by helping a portion of Jackson, the Capitol Complex Improvement District, which was carved out back in 2017 and had the full support of Democrats back then. What's your yeah. response? Well, uh, I don't know um, what he would say in terms of the full support of Democrats. Uh, in 2017, I was a part of a group called the uh, Coalition for Economic Justice, where we saw this as a Trojan horse at that time. Uh, I want to be clear that the Democrats who did support it in that moment in time uh, were supporting something that uh, was aimed in the vein or, or at least um, 
cloaked in the vein of an infrastructure bill to support uh, infrastructure projects around uh, capital institutions or facilities, uh, and not a measure that, that created its own court system, not a measure that created a police department with lack of accountability to the residents uh, and allowed these levels of abuse to take place. Um, and so there was a difference of opinion amongst Democratic leadership at this time. But what is clear is that no one sponsored or no one supported what we are now seeing. So, Mayor, what are, what are you and fellow Democrats going to do about this? Well, uh, we're going to continue to not only uh, attempt to kill it uh, before it becomes law, uh, but, you know, we have a few tools left in the shed. Uh, I will not uh, fully uh, lay out all of the efforts uh, that we will undertake in order to defeat this measure, uh, but we will not rest until we, we see this come to its conclusion. Mayor Chokwe Lumumba, thank you very much for the, your time tonight. We're going to continue to discuss this. Really appreciate you being here. My panel is back with me now. Um, Ellie, I don't even understand. So this, let me just pull up again what the House bill said. It would expand the Capitol Complex District to cover a third of Jackson's population. It would create new judicial district with state government-appointed judges. Judges would be appointed by the state Supreme Court Chief Justice. Prosecutors would be appointed by the state Attorney General. Uh, this is a parallel justice system? Yeah, so there's a big difference between the bill that the House, Mississippi State House, passed, which you just outlined, and the bill that the state Senate passed. And, and the, the key question is going to be, how do they reconcile that? But if this one that you just laid out, the House version, becomes law, one of those tools that the mayor was just talking about, I guarantee you, is a lawsuit. And he's going to make an equal protection challenge. He's going to say you're depriving the people of this city of their votes. You're installing a parallel justice system installed by people who don't live in this jurisdiction, I think will have a very good claim. So it'll be really important to see which version of this becomes law. Yes, but is there a precedent for a parallel justice system in a city? Boy, there, you know, it, this, this, is a, this is new ground. I mean, it's pretty Maybe flagrant. Jim Crow, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty flagrant to say the state is going to impose this justice system, judges and prosecutors on only this one town, you, where everybody else in the state gets to vote on their own representatives. I can't think of one. I'll tell you that much. Sherilyn Eiffel, the former uh, leader of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, made a very important point on Twitter a few days ago, and that is, had the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court of the United States not gutted the heart of the Voting Rights Act, this would not be possible because Mississippi would have to submit any changes to its voting laws to either Department of Justice or a three-judge panel for approval for precisely the reason that the mayor is now alleging, because this is a, history, this is a state with a history of racial discrimination uh, and that this would be an example of something that probably would not survive scrutiny were it to have to go through that, that Voting Rights Act process that now no longer exists. Um, John, about crime in Jackson. Is that, uh, you know, predicate for doing something this this rash there? Well, and we can't lose sight of the problem. I mean, Jackson is a city in a series of crises. You've got the water crisis, you've got the zoo crisis, you've got the crime crisis. But if you look at that, I think the murder rate for the United States is five per 100,000. Um, in Jackson, it's 88. So it's, it's per capita, probably the murder capital of the United States, um, with 100 and... 53,000 people, that many uh, murders. That's a real problem. So what the state, if, if you take the state's claim as we're trying to fix this, what the state is saying is uh, the city's out of control. We're going to take the Capitol Police. We're going to give them citywide authority. We're going to increase their numbers. And we're going to 
set up uh, prosecutors and judges that will put people in jail, and we're going to get a hold of this crime thing starting from the center of the city at the Capitol. The problem with it, as, uh, as Ellie and, and, and Mondaire have said, is it lacks all due process. Uh, voters don't get a say. People aren't elected. It's unilateral act uh, on the part of the state that, uh, as you pointed out, it's a little unprecedented, a state takeover of a city without going through any mechanics. It's not that unprecedented when you think about what happened in other states during the early days of the Great Recession, where you had white GOP leaders of states and governors say, this city here can't manage its education, so we're going to take the education over. Or this city over here, I distinctly remember this happening in Benton Harbor. I'm from Detroit. I know that the state tried to take over our education system because Detroiters couldn't lead and they needed help. The reality is, is that you had white flight in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s that not only took away the diversity, but also, hello, tax dollars, right, to be able to actually take care of the cities. When those went out to the suburbs, you had a city maintain the same size, but with fewer tax dollars to operate in. What's the number one precursor to crime? It's poverty. What's the industry in, in, in Mississippi? Does anyone know? Exactly. So you have a very poor state. You have a, a white leadership in the state level. You have black leaders on the, on the city level. And you don't have any industry in which you can actually begin to think about getting people out of poverty. So, of course, there's going to be crime there. This is the things that we've seen in the Great Recession. This is what we see coming out of the Great White Flight. This is that. I don't know if it's Jim Crow 2.0, 3.0. I just know we've seen this pattern over and over again. Let me get Scott in. Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, I think Jackson, Mississippi is one of, if not the worst-run city in America. You can't drink the water. It is not probably. It is the highest per capita murder rate in the United States. I think this is a failed state. It's completely and totally dysfunctional. The local leadership has failed. The mayor has failed. The city council has failed. And I think what the state leaders in Mississippi are trying to do is get control of an unlivable situation. They want the city of Jackson to be habitable by human beings. It has Scott, nothing to do with voting garbage. or race and has everything to do Scott, with a failed city. Scott, this is garbage. And you know it. The city, the people in Jackson, Mississippi had been asking the state officials to help them with the water problem for years. I personally have covered two times now in which the people in Jackson, Mississippi couldn't even drink the water. And now you're going to tell me the emergency that they need is dealing with crime. What about the emergency with water? Why wasn't that put up as a number one emergency? I think you're repeating some garbage. I don't think you're repeating actual facts. Oh, that's Scott Rasson. Uh, well, I mean, who is in charge of water utility in any city or municipality in America? It's the mayor, it's the city council, it's the local leadership. They have totally failed. And because of that, the state legislature and the governor had to intervene. Now you have this highest per capita murder rate in the country. I mean, th this city is completely and totally dysfunctional. What is the city... Uh, what is the state leadership supposed to do? Just let this thing continue mm -hmm. to spiral out of control? I don't know well, what the final bill is going to look like, the and there may be changes, yeah. but it would be irresponsible for the state legislature and the governor yeah. to just let this go on and on and on. In yeah, let, let me the just say something. What, but I mean, in terms of, I think that you're talking about different things. You're talking about the origins, again, of this, what, yes. how we got here. We got and here? he's talking about the, what are we going to do from here, the solutions. Yes, because that's exactly the routine. You forget about the origins, you talk about the problem, and then you blame black people. People, whoever the minorities are leading the city, but you don't talk about how you got there. And Mondaire? The, the, the mayor has talked about wanting resources to help address the issue of crime as it exists now, in addition to 
those violence interrupters, right, that he referenced, and other investments in reducing poverty and other things that we know tend to increase the risk of criminality in, a, in any given community. And that's, that's, the, that's, a, that's a broader problem in this country that we, we talk often about, like, how to stop crime as it currently exists yeah. and not enough about the, the precursors to crime, um, sort of solving for that on the, on the front end so that we actually don't spend as much but money. But let me just ask you, how do you stop this crime? So, I mean, there's just this fundamental question here. The mayor gave a menu, right? Uh, I have a real-time crime center. That needs additional support. I want a crime gun intelligence center to run these ballistics and shell casings. I need more cops. Last time I looked, they were down 100. Um, and, you know, that is the kind of aid he's saying the state in a democratic process should give to a city. What the state is saying is, we're just going to do this. Um, which is kind of a, a broken approach to it. Yeah, to, to that point, I, I don't think that this solution, the House version, the mo- more drastic version, really addresses the problem. They're just saying, we're going to choose your leaders for you. What's that going to fix? So I think whatever the intention is, just from a law enforcement perspective, this won't do anything to help. Gentlemen, thank you all very much. Obviously, we will continue to follow this story. Meanwhile, more and more people are logging onto Instagram and getting a lot of violent content that they're not looking for. They didn't sign up for it. A Washington Post reporter has some answers about what's happening. Taylor Lorenz, here next. The Washington Post reports that some Instagram users are getting horrifyingly violent content they never wanted to see. This is extremely disturbing stuff. Videos of torture, shootings, violent accidents. They're reaching thousands and thousands of people. Here's just one example. A post shared by an account with more than 560,000 followers captioned, hashtag watch, 16-year-old girl beaten and burned to death by vigilante mob. Joining me now with more of her reporting is Washington Post technology columnist Taylor Lorenz. Taylor, thanks so much for being here. This is horrifying. I was I was so stunned by your article. Why are these this disgusting content popping up in people's feeds or on their accounts when they're not searching for it? Yeah, it's absolutely horrifying. And I think a lot of this content is frankly traumatizing users. Um, So what's happening is basically Instagram has been boosting its product Reels, which is its TikTok competitor. It's been sort of elevating Reels posts in the feed. And what meme pages realized um, is that by posting the most horrific content possible, um, that content will be rewarded with views and bubble up to the top of people's algorithms to the point that Instagram's serving this sometimes the first post that people that they see. I mean, I read some of people's responses in your article. It is traumatizing them. This is not anything you want to just stumble upon when you're just, you know, ch- trying to check, uh, you know, some fun video and suddenly you see s- something horrible. I mean, I, I, I'll read a portion of your article. One day last week, four large meme pages, two with more than one million followers, posted a video of a young child being shot in the head. The video amassed yeah. over 83,000 views in under three hours. Why, why does that even live on in Instagram? How, how have they not just taken that video down and made it inaccessible? 
Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I tr I actually conducted an experiment myself in the course of reporting this story where I took one of these videos and tried to upload it to TikTok. Now, TikTok has notoriously strong content moderation. Um, some people say too strong in certain areas, um, but it wouldn't even it wouldn't even allow me to upload the video. It flagged it immediately before it was served to one user. So I think it's disturbing that you know users are encountering this content, especially when they follow a meme page, thinking that they're going to get funny content, lighthearted jokes, you know, and suddenly because of the incentives that Instagram creates, these pages are posting gore and really disturbing videos. Do you know who's behind these videos? Is there any, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's not one person, but is there some group that could be shut down that's posting violence like this? Ugh, unfortunately, it's not one group. It's many, 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 many Instagram pages. I mean, there's thousands of people in these group chats coordinating this type of stuff. They trade this violent imagery, imagery with each other, and then they negotiate sponsored content deals. The reason that these Instagram pages are posting this violent content is because it boosts their engagement rate, and they can then monetize their pages at a higher rate. So I think Instagram needs to look at the way it handled sponsored content, maybe look at some of the incentive structures, of course. Um, but more importantly, they need to root out these specific accounts and, you know, determine if they actually violated terms. And if they have, you know, take action. I mean, how could they not? If you're showing a child being shot in the head, how could they not violate terms? Here's what um, Meta, the statement they released to you. Um, the content is not eligible to be recommended, and we remove content that breaks our rules. This is an adversarial space, so we're always proactively monitoring and improving how we prevent bad actors from using new tactics to avoid detection and evade our enforcement. Is that accurate? I, I mean, what they're trying to say there is that this content, they say, is uneligible for a recommendation in the Reels carousel and in, um, you know, in the Instagram Explore page and things like that. But what they say, I mean, what how I interpret that statement is basically, well, these people followed meme pages, so, you know, what do they expect, apparently? Um, I mean, that's the takeaway that I got from that. I think they are, you know, looking into these accounts. Instagram, you would think, doesn't want this content either because it is alienating users. Users do not want to see it. So I do believe that they, you know, are going to take action. But I think they need to look at the whole you know, the whole way they police this type of content. Because Instagram does have pretty strict guidelines in other areas, as we know. You know, you can't, for instance, show women's nipples, things like that. That will get you taken down right away. I mean, obviously, they need to look at this because it is so vile. And again, so traumatizing for people who are surprised by it. Uh, Taylor Lorenz, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you bringing this to our attention. Thanks. Okay, now to this. Ever reach for a zero-calorie sweetener? A new study finds that some of those sweeteners could be linked to heart attacks and strokes. We have all the details you need to hear. Next. If you've got a sweet tooth, you might want to check the ingredient list before your next treat. A recent study found that a sugar replacement called erythritol is linked to increased risks of blood, co blood clotting, stroke, heart attack, even death. The study found that this sweetener is on par with the strongest cardiac risk factors like diabetes. Okay, guys. Uh, Aretha, 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 you were going to say Aretha, Aretha Franklin. I was. Aretha. I was. She has nothing to do with this. Erythritol. 
at it, is in a lot of stuff. It's in all the keto-reduced sugar products, like if you're on the keto diet, and it's in uh, stevia. So stevia is, you know, a sugar replacement, and this is used apparently to bulk it up. Haven't we learned the lesson already not to mess with Mother Nature? Like when it comes to food, should we not <laughs> mess not? with Mother Nature about? Shouldn't we just eat natural foods? Clearly not. You know, I will say this about the artificial sweeteners: they got a hell of a brand representative because they've convinced us that we're better than sugar. No matter what else says, they, no, no matter what science says, we're better than sugar. You use artificial sweeteners? I definitely do some stuff in my Jack. So it's Jack and Diet. So whatever's oh. in the diet. <laughs> Whatever's in the diet. <laughs> okay, can, can I can I cite can I cite a precedent here? I'm talking about cocktails, people. <laughs> Jack Daniels in a Ellie splash was the diet. worst. <laughs> Ellie was the worst. <laughs> so I'm glad you've um, you've enjoyed that response. Um, yes, go, Ellie. There is legal precedent on this. Um, do you all remember snack wells? Oh, yes. 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 So, right, these were, Monday, you're too young, but we, we all remember. <laughs> this was marketed as the miracle dessert. They were yes. cookies and stuff, yes. but they were no sugar, no fat or something. Yeah, no fat. They were, first of all, they were horrible, right? <laughs> right, they were okay, they, yeah. No, they were, I, they what nice was the best one? They were, right, <laughs> <just talking. laughs> they were horrible, <laughs> and you had to eat 14 of them yeah. to even feel full, yeah. and now we learn that they were doing all this other stuff to you. So right. we should, we've known this for a long yes. time. Yeah. yeah, you can't, there's no, if you are craving sugar or fat, just eat sugar and fat. Right. I and mean, not all the time, obviously, in moderation, eat the, <laughs> eat the Mediterranean diet. Right? Except pasta all the time. I know. Pasta is fine. Pasta is okay. Uh, do you do artificial sweeteners? No. Oh, thank you. Because I'm telling you, this whole stevia, stevia was advertised as being super healthy even and that it was very natural. And I always thought, mm, can't. there's nothing, no free rides in this. Agreed. Um, what do you mix with your Jack Daniels? <laughs> Lately, I've been doing vodka. <laughs> um, uh, oh God! Look, I, no, seriously, I don't. I don't use these sweeteners, um, and I, I try to, to drink black coffee now because because wow. I'm trying to cut down on just sugar intake generally. Um, but I'm I'm not gonna stop. Like if if you know if someone gives me stevia, then I'll, really yeah. no. Nope. No, it's inconclusive, no, it. right? I mean, we don't have definitive evidence that this is going to cause a heart attack. Uh, I would risk it. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> a little evidence yeah. enough on just, this one. Yeah, <laughs> just go back to regular sugar. Right. I mean, yeah, that's it. Glad we've resolved all of that. All right, everybody, we'll be right back. <laughs> There's something special coming up tomorrow night. Bill Maher sits down for a one-on-one with Jake Tapper. What does the late night host think about all sorts of issues, including the upcoming 2024 election? This CNN primetime interview is tomorrow night at 9 on CNN. And then I will see you right afterwards at 10 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.